see that there it says 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 and then various. That means we got a lot of scripture. That means uh, we're not going to read all of that. Well, I'm going to read some of it, but we're not going to look at all of that. But uh, as you know, we've been in this series. We've been uh, on defending the faith. And, and actually, uh, I, I know I've probably told you this a number of times, but this has been such a, uh, just a, um, well, it's been challenging, but at the same time, it's been something that has just really, um, I guess, opened my eyes to see, you know, to the culture around us and, and just kind of uh, really recognizing things that are happening around us in, 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 a, in a way that puts it in context and puts it in to, to realize what's happened, um, I guess, happening um, as we, we live in a culture that, that really is trying to push God out of everything and and uh, making, um, uh, what's the word, uh, trying to marginalize everyone who is, happens to be Christian. And we, we how many, have you ever felt like in your own, your own lives that, that it's not appropriate to share your faith because, you know, people don't really want to hear it? I'm not, I'm not saying that whether you believe that's true or not or whether you feel that that's right or not. I'm just saying, have you ever felt that way? That I just, you know, I, I need to kind of keep that to myself because nobody else. Have you ever felt that way? See what, they, see what they've done? That's what they've done. That's what, that's the whole, that, that's the, I think the significance of, of the series that we're talking about is that we have basically, they've accomplished what, whoever they is, the they, they've accomplished exactly what they want to do, to marginalize Christians so that basically they want to get rid of right and wrong so that they so that we can, that's, that's the idea of our society or those who are um, anti-God type individuals who, who want to get rid of that so that we don't have to, we can throw out morality. Um, so we're back again in this series that we've been looking at and, and, and it's been exciting to, for me and it's been, I uh, learned a lot uh, through this and um, we have really the whole time been really trying to answer some objections and some questions that people might have concerning the, the Christian faith. And I, you know, I realize that for most of us, uh, if not all of us, that we already believe in God, that we already trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. And because I know that, you know, I mean, I guess deep down inside of us, you know, we know that these things are true because we feel it deep down in our souls and we accept it completely on faith. And I just think that that is absolutely awesome. I just think that's good. It's a it, that, that we can do that. I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I don't know that there has ever been a time in my life when I have ever questioned my faith, when I've ever questioned the validity and the truthfulness of my faith. But God has increasingly shown me the importance of us understanding some of these, of these arguments. And um, I think it's because the truth is not you see, the truth is that not everyone accepts the truths of God. And the Bible uh, is not accepted by everyone as readily and as easy, easily as maybe some of you have. Um, there are some people who have some deep, longing questions concerning faith. There are people who have deep longing questions concerning th uh, you know, God and, and, the, and the Bible and Jesus Christ. And, 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 and they, they truthfully, they want to understand. They want to, to know. And, 
And, and there are those who believe, believers even within the church, who believe, yet still have questions and have lingering doubts. And, and so one of the things that I hope that this series has, has started to accomplish and, and will accomplish is for us to feel confident in the Christian, in, in the Christian faith and, and also to know that our faith is in fact reasonable. Our faith is reasonable. I ho also hope that this will help to equip us to minister to others. Because see, the reason that we look at these questions The reason why we look for answers to our faith, it's not so, and I gotta, I gotta say this straight up front, it's not so that we can win arguments. That's not the purpose of it. It's not that, that we, so that we can so, sort of feel some sort of smug satisfaction in our beliefs, but it's because we want others to discover the truth of God's word. Well, the book of Colossians commands us, one of my favorite verses of scripture, he says, Paul says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I love that word picture that he gives there. Um, how, many would you, how many of you would open up a, 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 a container of salt and pour it on your hamburger? You only put a little bit on. Seasoned with salt. Do it gently, with gentleness, with respect. We don't overwhelm people. We let our conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we know how to answer everyone. Peter urges us in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope in which you have. These are commands to all of us as believers. Um, well, what, 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 we're, what we're really, what we've been trying to do is simply just to be faithful to the commands of our Lord. And so we've been, we've been looking at some questions, and I... I believe people want an answer to these questions. I really do. There are people, there's some that don't, but there's a lot of people that do. And our first question dealt with the existence of God. And, and so over the last few messages, we've, we've shown how there are some physical evidences, physical evidences in the universe that declare the glory of God. And, and, and so we've shown some evidences within uh, humanity itself even last week that likewise point to the existence of, of God. But you know what? All of that, as we look at that, we are left wondering. We're left wondering, we're, you know, who is this God? And, and, and can I know this God? And, and do I want to know Him? And we're left wondering if this intelligent designer behind the universe is in fact God, the God of the Christian faith. Let me just put it this way. I can come in here on Sunday morning, I can walk up to this, this podium here, and and not even say a word, and there are some things that you could learn. There are some, some presuppositions that you could make. Um, for starters, you could determine that I exist, right? Everybody knows that. Can't deny that. Um, my hair is blonde. You can see that. A um, little touch of gray on the sides, you know, sideburns. Um, so you might kind of guess, you might be able to, just by looking at me, kind of guess my age a little bit. Y you might be able to determine that I have difficulty, some difficulty with my eyes because, you know, I'm wearing glasses. So you might be able to do that. Um, you might even come to the conclusion that I like fried chicken and, and ice cream and other kinds of things, you know, um, other, whole lot of other food. But for you to really know me, to know what I'm like, to know my heart, to know my personality, who I really am, 
I would have to communicate to you in a much more intimate way. I would need to speak. See, God is here. God is present. He is not silent. He has communicated with us in, in, in a general way in, the, in his book of nature. Over the last few weeks, we have seen that there are things that we can determine about him by the things that he has done, by the things that he has created. We, we can see that he is an intelligent and powerful and, and a lover of beauty, and even that he is personal, even that he is moral. But beyond that, we can know little else simply by looking at what He has done. Well, not only has God spoken to us generally, but God has spoken to us specifically and specially through His Word, the Bible. God has done that. God has revealed Himself to us in both works and in words. And He not only wants us to know that He is, but He also wants us to know who He is. He has done this through the Bible. Irvin, or, or not Irvin, Irwin Lutzer, uh, pastor, author, he's a theologian, he said this. He said, the real battle of our day is not moral, is not the proliferation of pornography, the desecration of our educational system, nor abortion on demand. All of these are but symptoms of failing to address the deeper question. Has God left, left us a trustworthy revelation that tells us how to be reconciled to Him? Is there a standard beyond man by which to live and judge what is right and what is wrong? You know, there used to be a time where people, people believed that everyone had a right to their own opinion, but, but that belief, I think, has been hijacked, and, and, and now today the absurd prevailing belief is that every opinion is equally valid or right. In today's world, spirituality and, and truth are seen to be strictly matters of a private thing, kind of what we were talking about before. And, and many times those beliefs are accepted or re rejected based upon someone's feelings. The question that we struggle with today is this, is truth something that I, I, I have the right to make up according to my liking, or... Is there some objective standard of right and wrong that should shape my thoughts and shape my beliefs and shape my actions? Are there some religious convictions based on fact or is everything relative and attributable to my personal opinion and preference? Are there some religious claims that are based on something solid that we can rest on and rely upon? Are there some religious convictions that actually touch, that, that, that actually touch and are, are based on the true person and the character of God Himself? See, I think as believers that, that the answer to those questions is just a resounding yes, right? There is a standard, and that standard is God's Word, the Bible. That's, that's our standard. And, and, and that's the Word of God, and it, it, it is based upon the unchanging character of God. God has spoken to us through His Word. You know, I, I don't know if I've told you this before um, when I started this series, but the way that I've been approaching this series has really been from the perspective of a, of a skeptic. And, and so that means that when someone says that God has communicated with us through the Bible, that our natural response will be, well, how do I know I can trust the Bible? 
I mean, that's a question that comes, I think, from honest skeptics and even some believers. How can I know that there is something special about this book that sets it apart from all other books? Why should I consider this book any different from any other religious book or any other work? And so today, what I want to do is I just want to briefly give you some proofs that, that the Bible that you hold in your hands and that you hold in your hearts is reliable and, and is trustworthy. Now let me just say this up front here. I cannot give you an absolute proof that the Bible is exactly what it says it is and that Jesus, that Christianity is what it claims it is. I cannot do that. I mean, no matter how much evidence is presented, there will still be room for faith. We need to understand that. There must be room for faith. But I need us to understand one important distinction about that is, and that is this. When I, when I speak about faith, I'm not talking about a blind faith. I'm not talking about a faith that is contrary to logic. I am speaking about a faith that is based upon solid, reasonable evidence. Our faith is reasonable, not unreasonable. It is logical, not illogical. When it comes to the Bible, all the questions asked of it and the scrutiny placed upon it, though we may not personally have the answers, we don't need to fear. The uh, Bible is truth. And as Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, he said, truth is tough. It will not break like a bubble at a torch. No, you may kick it all about, you may kick it about all day like a football, and it will be round and full at evening. That's a pretty neat quote. Skeptics, critics, atheists, cynics, doubters have been kicking at God's word for centuries. Centuries. And it has not and will not break. In France, there's a monument to the Huguenots who died uh, as martyrs for the cause of Christ. And on that monument are inscribed these words. Hammer away, ye unregenerate hearts. Your hammer breaks, God's anvil stands. Theologian and apologist Bernard, Bernard Ram once said this. He said, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. It, it's just interesting. I love these kinds of quotes because I've read the history where they, they've just tried to attack the Bible and tried to get rid of the Bible and tried to burn the Bible and tried to get rid of every shred of in, evidence and I, and I heard this one quote one, uh, or this one statement one time that they said, you know what, even if they were successful in getting rid of all the Bibles out of our homes, that all of the literature in all of our libraries and all, I mean, you'd have to get rid of all books. All of that would carry with it the gospel message and the things that we need for salvation. But uh, Bernard Ram says this, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and the committal read. But somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knifed, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology or Bell's, le Bell's letters of classical and mod or modern times has been subject to such a mass attack as the Bible? with such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and irredution, upon every chapter, line, and tenet, 
the Bible, he says, is still loved by millions, read by millions, studied by millions. It remains the most published and most read book in the world of literature. So today I want to give you some, just a few reasons why the anvil of God's truth, the Bible, stands and lives. And the first thing that I would say is this. The Bible is God's word because it says so. Now I thought about that for a while. And I just got to tell you, I know, I know for a fact that exactly what I just said is the height of circular reasoning. And it does little to offer proof that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. But let me just go forward with that. The Bible is the Word of God because it says so. You see, I think that because of its influence, because of its longevity, I think that anyone, whether a believer or a skeptic or an atheist, owes it to themselves and owes it to the Bible to at least, at the very least, hear and know what the Bible claims about itself. Even in a court of law, the defendant is allowed to speak for themselves. Isn't that true? One verse, I think, clearest and best known concerning the authority and the origin of the Bible's message is found in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You, you all know this very well. It says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable or useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we need to understand that that isn't saying that God simply approved of these writings. What it is saying is that men actually wrote his words, that his ideas became their ideas, that they accurately recorded what he wanted, what God wanted us to know. And it's not simply an, an internal claim that the Bible makes for itself. It is one of many claims that the Bible makes about itself, claiming to be the words of God. So take these for example, and I'm just going to rip through some of these. Um, there's many more that I could give you, but uh, let me just give you, start with these few. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 4. And I chose 1 through 4. I chose that because that's part of the Ten, ten Commandments. It says, and it starts right off, and God spoke all these words. And then he says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make your, for yourself an idol. And God spoke all these words. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Look at the next words. You are to say everything that I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. Or Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Starts out this way, the words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came, it starts out that way. But you read that, first, that whole first chapter five more times in that very first chapter of, of, of Jeremiah. We read that the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to this prophet. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 37 and 38. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am... This is Paul. Paul says, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Or 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 4.15, again the Apostle Paul 
Paul says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Both the Old Testament, these are just a sample, but, but, but both the Old Testament and New Testament writers understood they, that they were, they, they, were so, uh, they were aware that when they wrote that they were writing the very words of God. If, if, if you systematically worked your way through the Bible, you, you would find, you would, you know, whether directly or indirectly, you would find some 1,500 statements that claim divine origin. But it's not just the Bible's words that we can look at. In, in allowing, I think, the Bible to speak for itself, we can also look at its structure and its unity and its uniqueness. Unlike the Book of Mormon, unlike the Koran, which are works of one man, the Bible is really a library of 66 books written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years, and yet the Bible is perfectly consistent throughout in regards to its message. You know, they say that if you tell a lie long enough and you subject that to public scrutiny and to examination, that eventually it will be revealed for what it is. Sooner or later, the facts will just not add up. Well, Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and uh, Irwin, I said it right this time, Irwin, not Irvin, Erwin Lutzer, in his book, Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible, uh, they said that we ought to consider the unity of God's Word. We ought to consider the unity of this book. That it was written over a period of 1,500 years, written by three different, in, in three different languages. And during that time, empires rose and fell, and cultures came and went, and, but that did not affect the unity of the Bible. I mean, the intricacy of the... Of, of its message and, and, and its history simply could not have been orchestrated by a man or by a group of men. It was written by 40 different human authors in a, in a wide variety of literary styles. They, they came from all walks of life. There were kings and fishermen and tax collectors and doctors and prophets and shepherds and farmers. And, and, and it, it just would be difficult to find a more diverse collection of writers. And they run the gamut from Moses, who was highly educated, to Peter, who was a fisherman. They all wrote at different points in his history, and yet all of their writings, they dovetail with one another. Not superficially, but intricately and brilliantly. The books were penned under different circumstances and, and in different countries and different cultures, we have Africa and Asia and Europe. And, and, and Paul wrote from, Paul wrote from this, a dungeon cell in Rome. And James, he wrote from Jerusalem. And Moses on, from the top of Mount Sinai. And then you've got Daniel who wrote, out of, uh, wrote from, uh, out of a Babylonian captivity. I mean, the Bible discusses all these diverse theological matters. Things like, like the nature of God and His purposes. You've got good and evil, and you've got the nature of man. You've even got God's redemptive plan. And I, you think about all that, I'd say, you know, I, I, I would venture to guess that if you were to go out into our community and you were to pick 10 people who have lived in Viroqua all of their lives, 10 people with similar backgrounds, 
They speak the same language, obviously. They're basically the same culture. And if, if we were to ask them to write their opinion on one or two controversial topics, let's just say something like, you know, pose some kind of question as to the meaning of life or moral issues or, or social issues or marital issues, the chances are they won't agree on everything. I think it's a pretty good shot. They wouldn't agree. And yet this book, the Bible, was written not by 10 authors, but by 40 authors, and written over 1,500 years in different cultures, in different continents, and three different languages, and they do not merely deal with one controversial subject, but hundreds. And yet there is unity in the theme of a Bible and in its structure. That to me is amazing. Does that not speak for itself? And while it, it, I certainly do, would say that, I mean, it, it has sub-themes, it has subplots. but even so, the Bible is really a single work with one major theme, and that is the person of Jesus Christ and the redemption that he provides. It's not a collection of 66 different books and with different stories. It's a collection of 66 books telling one amazingly consistent story from beginning to the end. So here's what Lucer concludes. He says the Bible cla Bible's claims about itself bring us to a place of decision. And we are left with few options. He says the Bible is either true or it is a forgery. He says it is either a good book or it is an indescribably bad book. It is either the word of God or, it is, or, or the misleading, deceptive words of men. The Bible, he says, is perfectly reliable and absolutely, uh, it is either perfectly reliable or absolutely unreliable. It is absolutely true or is an absolute error. If the Bible is mistaken regarding its origins, then we have no reason to think it is reliable in anything else. If the writers were writing their own ideas, then we should not take one line seriously. If they were wrong about the source of their ideas, then they were wrong about the content of those ideas. If the Bible is wrong 1,500 times, then it collapses like a house of cards. So the Bible speaks for itself. But let me just briefly share some things with that I believe history and archaeology have to say about the Bible, because they too confirm the Bible's reliability. A fellow by the name of William Albright, he was a leading, uh, he's a leading Palestinian archaeologist. He says this. He says there is little doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historical accuracy of biblical tradition. The people, the places, and events are found just where the scripture locates them. So I, let me just give you a couple of examples of that. Um, some of you may or may not know this, but for years they questioned whether or not Solomon's, uh, the, the, the Bible's description of Solomon's wealth, you know, just think we've, we, we talk about him as being the, you know, you, you look at what we make today and, and even some of our billionaires and all that kind of stuff, we've, We've seen him as being a fairly wealthy individual. But for years that, that has been doubted. 
But in 1925 and then in 1934, an archaeologist uh, by the name of Henry uh, Brestide, um, he unearthed the remains of one of Solomon's chariot cities at Megiddo. That's a tell that, that, that uh, we've actually done with, with Ray Vanderlaan's uh, that the world may know. We've, we've, saw, we've seen some of the things. Uh, we've followed him to the tell of Megiddo, and we've seen some of that kind of stuff. But anyway, that, that's in northern Palestine. But that uh, was unearthed. And uh, he also, this uh, fellow, um, Henry Brestide, he also found stables that were capable of holding more than 400 horses, the remains of a barracks for Solomon's chariot battalions, and the remains of a huge refining factory for car copper and iron. Uh, such, a, such an amazing discovery, which brings credibilities to the, the verses or the pages of the Bible. But here's another one. For years, the critics have, have um, doubted the existence of the Hittite people that, you know, they're mentioned some 40 times throughout our Bibles. For years, they've, they've, they've uh, um, doubted that. Um, but the Hittite capital of Bogaskoy was discovered in 1834 by a French explorer by the name of Charles Textier. And since his discovery, there have been a number of excavations that have taken place in the late 18th century, early 19th centuries, and thousands of Hittite texts have been discovered, including the Hittite Code. How that, how's that for evidence? Or how about the pool? Anybody remember the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5? You know, that, that whole idea that, that the superstition surrounding that, that they you know, that you had to make yourself, you'd had invalids that were lying all around and you had to somehow make it into the pool to be the first one in there and when the water was stirring and, and to be able to somehow be healed and that's mentioned. And um, until the 19th century, there was, there, was, there was no evidence outside of John's gospel for the existence of that pool. Guess what? It too has now been found. How about Pontius Pilate? Who is he? Anybody? Who's Pontius Pilate? The prosecutor for, for, for uh, well, not, not the prosecutor. I guess he's the one that, you know, um, the, the Roman governor, Roman official. Um, his existence has been doubted. But in 1961, he was confirmed as a high-ranking official by the discovery of the, what's been called the Pilate Stone and they found that in Caesarea. And a number of stones, have, or a number of coins that he minted uh, have, have also been found. And so we, we no longer uh, doubt, or the critics don't any longer doubt that he, in fact, did exist. Uh, but you can see how that kind of has an effect on it. If you, if you throw that out, that guy didn't exist, there's no proof for him, then the Bible's unreliable is their argument. But... Uh, how about this one? In Acts chapter 17, verse 23, Paul mentions this altar to an unknown God. Guess what? It was found in Athens in 1820, that altar to the unknown God. Um, so these are just a few examples. Uh, um, there are others. But for those of us, I think, who have accepted Scripture as the Word of God, we don't suspend our belief until biblical Events are confirmed by archaeology, do we? No. 
And yet it is reassuring to know that archaeology does in fact support the Bible's claims. The importance of the Bible giving an accurate historical picture I think cannot be stressed enough. Christianity is a historical faith with which that, that claims that God has broken into history. And, and if the Bible can be shown to be reliable in, in matters where it can be tested, then I think that we have reason to believe that it can be reliable in matters where our ability to, to investigate, you know, um, where, where matters that are beyond our belie- uh, ability to, to investigate, matters of things like faith and matters of, of salvation and matters of, of eternal life. Um, if it can believe, be believed in some things that we can investigate, then I think it gives credibility to those other areas as well. And so we have the Bible itself, we have history, we have uh, archaeology, and contrary, contrary to what some might tell you, science does not disprove the Bible, but in fact it supports it. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this here, because over the past few weeks we've, we've talked about how science proves, provides reasonable proof for the reliability of the Bible. So what I, well, let me just do this. What I want to do here is that I, want to, I have a handout here. And this is actually an abbreviated version of something that I found. There's a website called Clarifying Christianity. Um, you can just type that in, Google that in, and you can get on that. And this is actually a lot longer, and there, it goes into a lot more detail. But I've, I've abbreviated it. Um, um, somewhat, but anyway, what this does is it outlines biblical scriptures or biblical statements that are consistent with areas of paleontology, um, astronomy, meteorology, biology, um, anthropology, uh, geology, uh, just a number of things. You got the idea, right? I mean, it just goes detail after detail. This verse says this, and, and it, it's just it's consistent. It's supported, you know, by by the the, um, the the Bible. It supports the Bible. That science supports it. Um, but the point is that even though the Bible is not a sci- is not a science book, per se, right? We know that it is scientifically accurate. It is. I think one of the best evidences outside of that, but if, if you want one of these, uh, I can, and if, if we give them all out, we can, I can get you more of them. But I think one of the best evidences, though, for trusting the Bible as God's word is its fulfilled prophecy. It's fulfilled prophecy. One writer said that if God is God, that we can expect his prophets to write about the future with the same amount of certainty and assurance as historians who write about the past. You know, in the Bible, we, we find prophecies that are specific and that are verifiable in regard to things like events and times and, and naming of rulers and policies. I mean, you think, take, for example, uh, King Cyrus's reign as, uh, as a king in, of Persia or his political policy regarding the Jews in captivity and their, and their length of stay. They, they were all fulfilled while being... Uh, made 150 years in advance. I think about, I was just reading this morning, I was talking, you know, you read through the Bible and it talks where God is making some statements about what's going to happen to Assyria, or what's going to happen to the Babylon kingdom, you know, well advanced in, in, in years. The Bible makes those claims. 
there were prophecies regarding the destruction and the destiny of many different cities such as these. But in relationship to Jesus Christ, hundreds of years before his birth, prophecies, predictions were made concerning him. In, in relation to events surrounding his birth, his, his place of birth, his, his name even, or even how he would die. Um, I like, uh, I've shared some of this with you as well before, but um, share, Josh McDowell in his book, um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he talks about the fact that, that over 300 Old Testament prophecies find their full fulfillment in the very person of Jesus Christ. And, and again, you've heard me say this before, but um, talking about mathematician Peter Stoner, who, who actually came up with what, what that looked like. He, he calculated the odds of Jesus actually fulfilling eight of those prophecies that were concerning him were one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a huge number. He said, you know, I mean, that's one with 17 zeros behind it. He says that would be like filling the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet thick. And then you take this, you take one of those silver dollars, you paint it red, you throw it into the batch, you stir it all up, and then you blindfold a guy, send him into that state of Texas, and you tell him to reach down at some point. He can go anywhere he wants to. He can reach down at some point. He picks it up, and that's what he's going to find. That's what his calculations found out. And so Stoner says that the chance of that person picking up that red silver dollar would be the same as someone getting eight of those predictions concerning Jesus Christ right. <laughs> and yet Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies accurately. Wow. Well, I want to close with this. Um, and this may be subjective, I don't know. But I would say that my personal experience is that yet another reason that I trust the Bible. I have found the promises in this book to be true. The Bible says that God will forgive my sin. I believe it. And it has happened. And I have experienced absolute freedom from the guilt and the penalty of my sin. The Bible says that I can be made new if I come into a relationship with Jesus, and I have. And all I can tell you is that I am not what I used to be. Millions of people from royalty to rags can tell of how this book and the God of this book has changed their lives. You know some of them. Some of them sit right in this room. We could look at science, we could look at history, but there are millions of people today who are living proof that the Bible is true, that it is reliable, that it is accurate, and it delivers on its promises. And to that I say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words, for your record that you've you've. Uh, given to us. We thank you for the history that we have of your word, how uh, even, even the fact that, that people have tried to destroy everything 
has given us uh, the ability to recognize how how solid uh, your word is, and because we know that it, what they've tried to do has been an absolute failure, and we thank you for for just assuring that your word would would uh, would make it to be able to be presented to people that we would be have the ability to read it, and and Father, I guess the only thing that we would come to is I pray that you would help us as individuals to not not just take it for granted but but to hide these words in our hearts that we would not sin against you and that we would be right before you um, we thank you for these words um, and we pray this in Jesus name Amen. let's uh, sing in response to that message would you please stand